you know, I wanted to be able to walk away and not have any earnouts or anything. So the offer was basically work for six months and then hand it over and walk away. So that was very appealing as a bootstrap founder because there's not, I think there's um, uh, nothing worse than kind of having someone else build your own dream for you and watching them build it. Like being there in the leadership meetings, watching someone else building your dream. So I wanted, I wanted to walk away from, from the company after selling. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Gavin Hammer, who sold his company Sendable in 2021 in an absolutely incredible deal. But before I get there, during today's episode, you're going to hear Gavin talk a lot about his passion for the business and specifically how he viewed his employees as family. And I did some digging for you and really found an incredible article that he wrote to his employees sharing some intimate details on the sale and why he ultimately decided to sell the company in 2021. So I will share that article in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Also, quick shout out to Joggle from Brazil, who left an absolutely incredible review over at Apple Podcast. Joggle, thank you so much for the awesome support. If you want to support the show just like Joggle, then you can head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have a chance to leave a rating and review. I will also share that link on how to do that in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Gavin Hammer, who in 2009 started Sendable. Now, the platform was originally built for his father as an email tool to schedule birthday messages to his employees. But it was at this time where the social media boom was happening. And so Gavin ultimately transformed the company into what it is today, which is a social media management platform, allowing you to schedule your posts and manage all of your accounts from one place. Now, in today's episode, you'll learn how to humanize your brand without becoming the bottleneck of the company, how to slash your churn rate with one simple strategic decision, a cool trick for turning customer feedback into online reviews, and what to look for in an LOI. Here to share with John the full story of how he sold Sendable to ASG is Gavin Hammer. Enjoy. Gavin Hammer, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Good to have you. So tell me the story about Sendable. I think it goes back to a pain point your dad had. Take, take me through the story. Yeah, so I'm originally from Cape Town, South Africa. You can probably hear from the accent. Uh, but I moved to the UK in about 2005. Um, and I guess, yeah, back then, I always wanted to start a business. Uh, you know, I was always coding in my spare time and trying to build solutions to problems. Um, and yeah, a couple of years after being in London, probably around 2007, 2008, uh, my dad, who ran a, a company in, in Cape Town, South Africa, he had about 50 employees. He said, Gavin, can you write some scheduling software for me to schedule birthday emails for my employees? Um, so I thought, okay, I'll put this thing together, build a little, uh, a little app. Um, it was like a, so I built a Windows app, basically, like a Windows console app, which is like a black and white little application uh, where you could basically put in a message, put in a date, put in someone's email address, and it would just send out the, the message on someone's birthday. And this is, this is pre-social media. So I kept like building this little thing, iterating on this little product, using it for my dad, helping him out. 
And then around that time, around 2008, I saw more businesses coming onto social media. Uh, so I thought maybe I should add in some social media features. Like what if you could schedule email and also add, you know, associate your social media posts. So things like Facebook came out back then, it was becoming more serious for businesses. So I added Facebook, uh, added things like Friendster back in the day, MySpace. Um, and this was before APIs even. So, you know, I had to basically scrape the websites to be able to let a user log in. So I built the tool using it personally, added all these social network sort of sites in. And then I thought, like, what if I put this thing on the web? This was like, you know, the personal Windows tool at that stage. What if I put this thing on the web and see what happens? Uh, so I went on Honeymoon in 2008. Remember this, uh, this day and I came back from Honeymoon and I, I built a little website. Um, I, I bought the domain sendable.com uh, because sending anything is possible. It, it was the whole thing. So being able to send any kind of post through this tool. Bought the domain. I think I got like a free logo off the web. Um, and I was able to actually buy this old server from my old boss for 10 pounds. So I bought a server, put it into my, in my, in my apartment, plugged it into the router, uh, put this website live, sendable.com, which is a free site just to schedule your social media and your email posts. Uh, put it out there. And actually back then, the, the business model, it's crazy. It's going to sound crazy. But literally, it was, I had businesses advertising to place contextual ads in the social posts of free users. So if you had a free user posting about, <laughs> um, you know, maybe cars, you'd get this automotive company posting an ad about buying a car on Twitter below that particular tweet. Um, yeah, so I put this thing out there and uh, I wrote to a few websites like Mashable, um, TechCrunch. And like back in 2008, it was really easy to get attention. So I was able to get about 20,000 users very, very quickly from those articles, from those, those two publications, all coming on there and just scheduling social media posts. So that, that's like the start of the journey. It was a, a kind of a free tool where businesses were paying a little bit to advertise. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, it's incredible. It takes me back, right? I'm thinking about 2005. I've, I don't know, the pandemic has made like time disappear <laughs> for me. Like sometimes things are like yesterday and then they're like 20 years ago. Maybe it's my age, but I feel like I'm trying to go back to 2005 and remember what was going on at that time. <laughs> this was pre-GFT. Of course, now with you know Microsoft Outlook or any of those kind of big email clients, you can just schedule an email at some point in the future, and you can send it. Like, but at that time, that probably was relatively innovative. Well, clearly it was, and you had people twenty thousand of them sign up, in particular for the social media posting. When did it change from monetizing eyeballs through advertising to a paid product? Yeah, so this was probably around two thousand and nine. Um, so, so back then it was like a little side project, right? So I built this thing on the side, had a couple of full-time jobs all over the course of building Sendable. Um, so about 2009, I was working for a software consulting firm. Um, I was leading up their um, dev team, engineering team. And um, I was making about 400 pounds a month back then just from advertising. And uh, in my employment contract, it said I had to register, I had to get permission from my boss uh, to register a business. And I thought, okay, I'm making about 400 pounds a month. Maybe just to protect myself, I should register a business. So I had to approach my boss and ask, with actually two of them, ask them if I could have permission to register a company. Uh, they said, sure, um, if you give us half your business, we'll help you. We'll help you with introductions. We'll help pay for your server hosting. You can, you can move it off your, your own server in your flat, your apartment. We'll pay for hosting for you. Um, and we'll give you a day to work on it a week while you're running our, our, our development team over here. So I thought, okay, like, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg had raised money, obviously, to get his business off the ground. 
I thought it's all tech founders, you have to raise funding. You know, I read TechCrunch back then. It was like my, my Bible. Uh, so I thought, okay, maybe this is the way to go. Maybe I should just get funding from them. Uh, I spoke to my parents um, who said, maybe try and negotiate it down, uh, get it down to like 10%. Maybe that's more realistic. So I ended up, I went away, I went back home to Cape Town on holiday. And then I came back to London and I was able to negotiate this deal down to 10%. So I ended up giving these two guys, these two, uh, the boss, boss I was working for and his partner, 10% of the business for zero cash, like zero equity, I mean, sorry, zero funding. Um, and they promised me all these things that weren't ever delivered. So I ended up, I ended up getting a day off a week for about six months to work on Sendable. They didn't give me the hosting. They didn't make any introductions. They wanted to keep me there to run their development team. So this was for the whole of 2009. I kept on building this product. They weren't really helping me. And it was actually a point where I almost gave up. You know, I was going to just stop working on Sendable because they were getting, you know, a cut of all the revenue I was making, even though, even though it wasn't much. As an early stage founder, it felt like, you know, like, like a stab in the heart every time you, you give someone a cut of your, 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 your profits and revenue. Uh, so end of 2009, I thought, okay, for me to make this thing profitable and to make it a real success, I have to go all in on the business. Um, and I have to get back that equity to make it worth my time. So in 2010, end of, end of that year when I was making a bit of money, in 2010, I quit my job. Um, I had about six months of savings. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make this thing a profitable business, make it a, make it a yeah, kind of, kind of um, give it a good shot, really. Go all in, make, it, make this thing work. So I spent about three months after I quit my job in 2009, sorry, end of 2009, 2010, just trying to convert this thing from a free tool to a business platform. And... Uh, yeah, and I, it, was, it was tough in the beginning. You know, I had to basically had to use half my savings to buy back the ten percent first of all, which was a huge. I think I've spent like eleven thousand pounds. Gavin, sorry, yeah. I, I didn't understand what you said. That you had yeah. to use partner savings. What was that? Sorry, sorry. Give me a second. So money that you had saved in order to buy back. <clears throat> yeah. So basically, I had about six months. Had about six months of savings of my own my own money in the bank, where I had to buy back ten percent of the business to make this thing um, worth my while. And, how, time and how did you value it at that time? How did you value it at that time? I mean, it was just really uh, not much more than a, a free service. Like how did you value yeah, the 10% of equity that you've given these? So yeah, basically we I had, had to get lawyers involved to help me. Um, so I had a, a lawyer friend get involved to kind of help with those negotiations. But essentially, um, they my, my lawyer met with, these two guys, these two um, partners, lawyers, and they came to an agreement where they said they would accept eight thousand um, pounds, and I had to pay legal fees of three thousand pounds. So essentially, it came down to just just really agreeing a price on something that wasn't worth anything back then. So it wasn't really worth anything at all. It was just this little product that was free, making some money from ad revenue, and uh, they ultimately agreed um, to give me back the ten percent for the eight thousand pounds. And I, you know, bear in mind that was half my savings gone. Yeah. What was it? Because a lot of people listening to this are saying, Gavin, it was 10% of the business. I mean, founders give away you know, equity like it's candy at the beginning, right? Because there's no, no, no value. It's just an idea. And like, oh, the partners have to have equity and the employees and the contractors and the guy who makes the logo. Like, they're giving equity away like candy. I'm not recommending that, but they yeah. do. But for you, you wanted to claw that 10% back and you were willing to give up three months, half of your savings to get it back. What was it about that 10%, measly 10% equity that, <laughs> that you were insistent on getting back? 
Well, it was basically because they hadn't given me any cash. So they hadn't really put any capital into the business. So essentially what they'd given me was six months. So in 2009, they gave me six months of one day a week to build Sendable, right? I kind of, um, what they agreed in the beginning was to pay for the hosting, which wasn't, wasn't actually provided. So I felt like I'd been taken for a ride. Like it wasn't even about the 10%. It was more about these guys took advantage of me. They took 10% of my business because I was a founder who thought, okay, I have to give something away to get something in return. So I felt like I was really taken advantage of. And um, I just, I, I didn't want to continue like having given away the 10%. It felt like it just had like a bitter taste in the mouth almost. And I, I wasn't motivated unless I could get back the 10%. So for me to buy it back with half my savings that I had, it was a big, big risk on my part. And, you know, um, my wife actually, back then my wife said to me, Gavin, I believe in you. Um, you know, if you can't support us or yourself, you know, we have my salary to live off. But I think for you to make this thing work, you have to buy back the 10%. So you have the motivation you need to make it work. And I think having done that, I had the motivation because I wanted to make this thing profitable. I wanted to prove them wrong and kind of show them that I could make this thing into something really profitable and successful without their help, you know. They unleashed the lion within. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that's exactly. So where it. does it go from there? So you you buy it you buy it back, you now own a hundred percent. You're down to three months savings. How do you get customers to pay for this when you don't have any money to advertise? Yeah, so first of all, I spent I spent a bit of that that time kind of rebuilding the platform, so making it a tool for business. Now, I, bear in mind when I first launched Sendable in 2008, I put this free website on the web. We had the, the massive um, you know, markets crash and everything back then. So it wasn't really a good time to start a business anyway. But in 2010, the markets had turned around. Plus, we had more businesses using social media back then. So I thought, okay, let me turn this tool into a business tool where businesses could pay to schedule their social media posts. Um, you know, they, they could pay for a number of profiles. They could add team members to work with them. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I, I spent about three or four months building this product out. And then I thought, okay, it's just me. You know, I'm a solo founder. How am I going to get this thing to generate enough money for me to live off uh, within a few months? Um, and I guess because of the markets changing, because of businesses coming on social, I realized there was a need for agencies to offer social media services to their clients. And I essentially offered a white label version of this platform uh, to agencies. So agencies could essentially take this and resell Sendable with their own logo, their own branding, as if it's their own product, and they could take advantage of this wave of businesses coming on social media, starting to use social media seriously. So I would, I would charge, I think I, think I charged $1,000 back then for a setup fee, just to basically stick some CSS, some branding on the sustainable site, um, and have it on that particular agency's domain. They could pay a one-off fee, and then they would pay like a pay-as-you-go amount per user. So with that, I was able to kind of just get the, the cash flow I needed to get this thing going to support me. Um, and literally from, from that moment, they just kept streaming and I had white label requests all the time because of the timing. I think timing was so critical. And I went from making $400 a month, you know, in, uh, in 2009 to six figures in revenue in that first year. So literally from the white labels. Wow. So how did you find agencies to approach about the white label offering? Just purely outreach, you know, I just reached out to them. And I think the fact that they saw dollar signs, <laughs> the fact that they could resell this 
to a market that they knew was looking for social media solutions that they could make it look like they were the heroes of the story. Like they had kind of built their own social media platform um, and taken advantage of it, of the, of the timing. I think, I think that was a big deal. The other thing was uh, back then you had Hootsuite, which was taking quite a bit of market share. Um, you know, it was like, it's like the, 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 the leading social media solution uh, for businesses. They were taking quite a bit of market share and um, they were quite recognizable as a dashboard. And because we were so new and small, the fact that we weren't so well recognized meant that we could approach these agencies who were willing to white label us. Um, and I think it was really just, the, you know, every, everyone I reached out to, you know, probably had maybe, maybe one in five would, would take up the offer. So it's just a matter of emailing them, contacting them, saying, I can help you grow your agency. Here's a solution I have. And there were even times where I would kind of mock up what their white label could look like. So I would just kind of take the sendable dashboard, take a screenshot, stick their logo on there, stick some colors on, and try kind of hook them with that. So there were various ways I could get them. Uh, but I think offering the white label was the, the, the biggest turning point for, you know, for, for, for sendable back then. Interesting. And, and what sort of downsides did you consider? I'm imagining some people can be hesitant around white labeling because they're very protective of their brand and the... The idea that if they white label, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a burn the bridges kind of strategy. They can never go back from that because they've lost control of their brand. They've given it up to the the channel, so to speak. Did did you consider that? And what other sort of, uh, you know, potential downsides did you consider with going white label? Um, so at the time, I was desperate, right? So I wanted to just get the revenue in. <laughs> so I just needed to make money. Um, in hindsight, yeah, looking back, it was a bit of a mistake um, because we weren't recognizable. So we had all these agencies who had, maybe some of them had hundreds of users on their white label uh, version of Sendable who never knew about Sendable. So these are people who could have kind of spread the, the awareness for us, um, you know, the brand awareness, the, the word of mouth that we didn't get in the early days. So I think, I think in hindsight, the white labeling was not the right move, but it was the right move for the short term. You know, I wouldn't have got this, the, the company going if it wasn't for the white labels. But for early stage founders now, I would say it should be more of a, a last resort. Um, I mean, there were various issues. I guess other things we encountered was like, for example, Facebook's policies. They didn't like the fact that we were hiding the fact that Sendable was the engine behind these white label platforms. It was almost like untruthful and, you know, almost like faking it. So we had issues where, you know, we were, we were blocked for that by Facebook. We had issues where we used to create kind of cloned Twitter apps. So an app is something that uh, is used to connect from an API or from software to Twitter, for example. Um, so we, we would create, um, you know, duplicate Twitter accounts, Twitter apps that could hook into the, each of the white labels. So if you had a white label, uh, let's say it was for Starbucks, uh, Starbucks would have their own Twitter app. And there was actually a stage where I was on holiday. I was in Spain for you know, a couple of weeks. And literally Twitter blocked all of our apps. So we had over a hundred of these apps on the Twitter developer platform. And they said, we have to block you because, you know, you're creating these, these malicious clones of the sendable app. Um, and literally I had to find someone at Twitter who could unblock us. Uh, it was a nightmare, but uh, I, had, I had so many sleepless nights because of the white label. Um, I think I would say like, if you're going to integrate with a third party, be very, very careful if you're going to offer a white label uh, to, your, to, your, to your customers. What would you do, hindsight being 2020 now, instead of white labeling? Or how would you change the strategy? 
Um, yeah, so we actually did it later at Sendable. We introduced more of a, a co-branding solution. So because we had, I guess, we we'd, we'd built the awareness, we'd, we'd built credibility over time, our customers wanted to be associated with us. So having a, a co-branded version, which is kind of having powered by Sendable on your dashboard uh, was, was the way we moved forward. But yeah, yeah, I think back then I might've done that first, having more of a partnership approach where we'll power your dashboard, but it's going to say powered by Sendable. Um, and then, yeah, possibly just, I think uh, I'll touch on it a bit later, but I think, I think that the power of advocacy of getting a lot of users who can talk about your brand, um, and, uh, especially in a world where ads are no longer effective, it's very noisy. There's so much competition. I think we should have taken an approach of rather turning those wide labels into advocates for us. Uh, so maybe getting them to talk about Sendable more, getting them to kind of post about Sendable. Like, right, cause it's basically if you posted on social media, every post you sent out would have like a via Sendable attribution link below. When you had a white label, that attribution link was removed or hidden or replaced with something else. So I think, yeah, I think just um, partnering more on, on our brand and kind of building the brand up would have been a better approach back then. Got it. And so this really takes off. I mean, this, this solves the cash flow issue. You were able to retain 100% of your equity and build this business by reaching out to these advertising agencies saying, hey, we can make you look like a hero. You get the $1,000 up front as the sort of installation setup fee or whatever. And, and they're at a time when they need a solution because it's going off, exploding and hoots, uh, uh, yeah, Hootsuite's out there. Okay. So I'm, I'm getting the picture to six figures in, in revenue. Where do you ultimately get this business before you decide to sell? Like in terms of size, number of employees or any proxy you want to use for, for size? Yeah, so this was, again, this is back to 2010. I hired the first employee two years later only. So only in 2012 did I hire my first, my first employee. It was a salesperson uh, because we had so many incoming white label requests. So from there, I grew the team out. So I hired sales, hired product people, developers. Um, and then, yeah, we, 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 um, I guess it's probably about 2016. So we were growing steadily from 2010 to 2011, 2012. 2016, our growth kind of stalled. Um, and, uh, you know, we were up against these very well-funded competitors like Hootsuite, Sprout Social, various others. Uh, so, um, I decided to really scale up the team. I scaled up the sales team. I think I hired about six outbound salespeople to target enterprises. Uh, you know, I, I spent money on ads. Um, I did everything we could to grow past the state of stagnation in 2016. Uh, and. Yeah, if we, if, we, if we fast forward to the sale, you know, if you go from that to where we were off at the time of the sale, uh, we, we, we had around 50 employees at the time. But there was, a, as I said, about, th about three years of just no growth. And what I needed to do was figure out how I could make this company grow again. So what I, what I, went, uh, what I did was I went to this, um, this conference in San Diego called Social Media Marketing World back in 2018, I think it was, just to figure out like what are thought leaders saying about social media, where are the opportunities how can I get this business to grow again um, instead of flatlining? And back then, everyone was talking about storytelling. Like you have to be a storyteller. You have to kind of talk about your brand. Um, rather than selling it, you have to tell the stories behind the company. So I came back from that conference and I thought, okay, how can we reposition Sendable in a way that positions us as, as brand storytellers, leans into our truth, like figure out what makes us different 
from the likes of Hootsuite, Sprout Social, et cetera. And I went through this brand building exercise, kind of re redesigning our brand strategy, looking at everything we could do differently to help us stand out. And uh, what I figured out was like, rather than um, pretending to be like everyone else, like having all this kind of um, putting money into ads, hiring salespeople, what if we could be more open about being smaller, you know, being smaller, being bootstrapped, being focused on the customer? What if we made that a public message for our, our users and our audience? Um, so I started like sharing behind the scenes stuff, like just sharing behind the scenes, like content about my struggles as a founder, about the company struggling, about how we kind of were like the small fish in this big sea of funded competitors. And people started like loving the storytelling. They, like, they started to lean into the story. Um, I did things like I had a podcast sharing the behind the scenes stuff. Um, suddenly these uh, customers were like telling their friends about Sendable and about the story and everything behind the scenes. And, you know, I realized that you know, companies like Hootsuite, they were kind of faceless brands. They had, you know, hundreds of employees. They couldn't put a, a face to the brand. So we, we took this approach of just kind of doing everything we could to show our faces. We even removed stock images on the, on the blog and have photos of real employees. We did things like use video for support. So rather than having a support ticket over text, you could have a video, asynchronous video conversation for, with, a, with a person from our support team. So just showing our faces wherever we could. And then our brand just really took off. So from that, we had this amazing um, group of advocates of customers who are talking about Sendable spreading the word, spreading the love, talking about our customer service, people behind the company. And our growth just took off from there. So just literally building that brand, spending time on telling stories. Uh, so we went from that, that stagnated period of growth um, in 2016, 2018, to growing at, 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 at about 30% a year after that. So this is, this is like a 10-year-old company growing at 30% a year again. Um, and we reached a point where we had seven figures in profits. You know, I can talk about EBITDA just now, but uh, I think that, that that period of growth really helped to get us on the radar of, of possible acquirers. So we had the likes of other tech companies reaching out to us, wanting to acquire us because our brand had become so big just from storytelling, really. I've got so many questions about storytelling, but before I go there, I, I want to understand what caused the stall. So you mentioned you grew in 2012, you hired your first person, yeah. grew steadily till 2016, and then you kind of flatlined and, and had a period of three years where you stalled. Just walk me through the economics of why you stalled. Yeah, there were various issues. Um, we, we, so we, we had very high churn back then. So we, we had very high short-term churn. So people were signing up. What was your churn sitting like per month? Back then, I mean, it's going back <laughs> quite a few years. But uh, I think we were, we were probably over 8% at one point. Um, so very, very high churn. per month or per year? Uh, that was per month. Per yeah. Got it. Okay. So, so churn was very high and we, we, we basically figured out that um, people were coming on and uh, you know, signing up, putting in their uh, payment details, credit card details, which we were asking for up front. So we had our, our sign-up form with the credit card details on the sign-up form. And they were, they were kind of converting because they'd forgotten to cancel before they got billed. So we had very high short-term churn. So like in the first three months, that churn was really high. But once they got past through those first three months, they would stay with us for much longer. So we decided to do things like remove the credit card um, kind of field on the sign-up form. And rather than ask them for the credit card up front, 
let them put their details in once they saw value in the platform, which was a big risk. You know, we, we had much higher, higher, higher conversion, trial to paid conversion rate before then. So we, we removed the, the, the card details on the signup form and we saw our conversion rate just drop because of that. But then we hired someone in product marketing who kind of optimized our onboarding experience. She looked at every single step, looked at the educational material, took a more of a product-led growth approach. And that really helped us to stabilize the churn rate. So that, that was one thing we did um, back then, just to kind of get the churn rate under control. But it, it still wasn't really growing, but it was like steady. To be clear, we you to, went yeah. to... I just want to be clear. So you you, you had a, an automatically converting trial. So you had a free trial. Give me, give me your credit card up front. We won't bill you for a period of time. And then on the whatever day, what was it? Like a 15-day free trial or... So it was 30 days initially, and then we, we dropped it to 14 days once we removed the credit card. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So then it was automatic. So in the beginning, it was 30 days. And then after the 30th day, you build a credit card. They go, oh, man, I didn't really mean to buy this. You get this huge churn in the first three months. Got it. Then you move to removing the credit card up front and just capture their details, give them a free trial, 14 days, after which they need to make a decision. Yes, that's it. And and invested in a product marketer who really thought through the the kind of onboarding experience to optimize their usage during those 14 days. That's right, yeah. Got it, that's helpful for sure. And with those changes, what impact did that have on the churn? Um, yeah, so churn was better. Obviously we were, we were converting fewer users because they didn't forget to cancel. You know, there's obviously a, a number of users you can, you can get or revenue you can get from people who forget to cancel. So we, we saw lower conversion rates, but we saw those who put their credit card details in, um, they would stay for longer, you know, because they had made a conscious decision. So our churn rates went down. So that, that helped to kind of to stabilize the growth back then, you know, get us into a better position of, of growth. The other thing we did was we, we were obviously tracking NPS. So we had in-app NPS uh, surveys going out to users. And we would try um, take those users who gave us a, a higher NPS, promoters, and we would get them to write us a review on G2 Crowd. So we, 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 we knew that our users were, well, our, our prospects were looking at G2 to make a decision before signing up to Sendable. So we, we, we took those promoters, got them to write reviews for us, and um, we actually first tried to incentivize those reviews with things like Starbucks vouchers or Amazon vouchers. And we saw that those worked for a little bit in the beginning, but then they stopped performing over time. So I thought, okay, how about we try something different? How about we, you know, kind of, um, because I was, I was learning about brand building and trying to get the story out there, building a brand was a big thing for me. I thought, what if we could give them swag in exchange for writing a review? So those promoters who loved us, we sent them an email saying, you know, we'll, we'll send you a piece of swag. We'd love you to, to, to give us a review. And that, that, that change in mindset just boosted our reviews like crazy because people just loved the fact we were giving swag. They just loved our swag. Our swag was super cool because it wasn't like a, it wasn't swag that had the logo in it. It was swag that had our message, like our reason for, for being, our why, you know, our brand essence, uh, which was based back then. It was like every brand has a story, be its voice. So speaking to the agency them being the hero again, positioning them as the hero. They were keen to wear the swag and they were keen to write us a review to get the swag. So that, that boosted our reviews, uh, which also helped us to grow. Uh, and then from there, we were able to basically get listed on the, on the, the top platforms in our space on G2, um, basically you know, like the, the, the best social media management tools. We'd be like in the top 10. 
And then eventually we were able to get the review. And G2 so for folks we, who don't... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say for G2, for folks who don't know, uh, you know, that's like a Captera uh, type of website where people will search for social media schedule software and because of their influence of their of their domain they're often listed in the organic search listings as the number one website to go to where there are listed uh these different options and solutions and g2 is one of the offerings captera is another one i think there's uh, you know others but it 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 obviously had a big impact on your abil- ability to acquire customers because you were ranked at the top of the g2 listing which obviously has a huge huge value yeah, so we were actually ultimately That's after this super helpful. after this process, we were actually in, in the top five tools in our space. So we were we were, we were actually we were higher than Hootsuite, you know, for a bootstrap company to be rated rated on G two above Hootsuite, we were able to attract a lot more customers from that that big change. So that that, that helped us to actually attract more customers. Um, we drive up our new MRR, and we obviously were able to reduce our churn through the work we did on the onboarding process. So all of that really helped us to to grow along with building the brand, building advocates. Um, yeah, I want to I want to drill into the building of the brand and and this kind of building in public transparency thing because I I see this as sort of sexy on the on the internet and there's this whole like building in public <laughs> universe <laughs> of people that that go around like sharing all their sales and their you know, like all these numbers. I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, like, like this makes no sense. Like you're, you're revealing all this intimate details about your company to the world. It's so totally wrong, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm the one who's wrong and there was some value. So I, I got to dig in here. Cause like, to me, it's like, what on earth are you doing? You're giving up your brand. You're letting your employees effectively reveal to the world the inner guts of your operations. There's no control of your brand. It's just the wild west. Like, what am I getting wrong here? Yeah, I think I think in, in in our case, we weren't revealing our numbers in public, obviously, but I think we saw the opportunity being that our competitors were faceless. You know, we were up against Hootsuite, Sprout Social, who were massive, and uh, in my mind, I thought, what if I could be the more human CEO personally? What if, what if my company could be the more approachable option? Um, and I think because we were different by being more open, uh, it, it, it kind of made people warm up to us and trust us more. So yeah, I wouldn't say it was, it was like sharing numbers, but it was more things like things that I did that weren't really scalable. So for example, every week we had hundreds of new paying customers. So I'd get a spreadsheet of all the hundred paying customers, let's say, and I would manually message them on LinkedIn. So I'd send them a DM saying, welcome to Sendable. You know, I'm the CEO. I'm here if you need anything. And them getting a message from the CEO of a company that, 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 that they thought was a massive company like Hootsuite. They thought the CEO of something like Hootsuite had reached out to them uh, because we were on the list comparing us to Hootsuite and we were like in the top five tools. And here's the guy who started the company reaching out to me. So you can see that the impact on them was like huge. Like, wow, this, I can really speak to the CEO. I can contact him. He took the time to reach out to me. Um, that was massive. But because, didn't that create like a whole barrage <laughs> of issues downstream where all these people are like t- texting you or messaging you over LinkedIn? <laughs> there was a bit of that where they thought they could reach out to me anytime, but it wasn't actually that many of them that would do that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe maybe 10% would say, oh, I know the CEO of Sendable, I can send them a message. It was more, like, more knowing that they could at any time escalate things to me. Um, that was one thing I did. And the other thing was I had office hours every day for, for customers to come on uh, Zoom 
and just ask me any questions or you know help or help escalate things um you know obviously the, these things aren't scalable but when you're doing 100 of them a week or having 100 customers being impacted by a ceo a week that over time can actually compound so i think i think doing those little things um was big and i knew that if i could show vulnerability in my linkedin posts um, or in my podcast they would want to listen more because it seemed more trustworthy you know so i had employees come on the podcast who would talk about a challenge that they were facing and how they overcame it and the customers would have really experienced that themselves through what we did as a company so yeah i, I guess it was all of those things and i realized i was working when i i, I held it i held a meetup in san diego i went to the, i went back to the conference i mentioned a couple of years later and we, we basically booked out a, a bar um, and we had all our customers come to this, this bar we had rented out and they saw me at the bar and they said, Oh my God, you're like a celebrity to us. We know you, we've heard your podcast. It feels like we, we know you as a person. They were basically in awe of me almost because they'd heard my story. Um, and they all came, they all brought their friends, they brought other, other prospects to that event as well. Uh, and they were so proud to say, Oh, I know Gavin personally, he's a CEO, he can help you. And all these little things added up. Um, so I think by, by being vulnerable, by, by being open, people can really lean in and kind of enjoy that, that sort of experience, which is, which is fairly unique when you're kind of a, in a space which, which is full of like much bigger, well-funded competitors. Yeah. But it also implies a certain risk, doesn't it? In the sense that if you, you know, propagate this kind of David and Goliath battle message, you being David up against Hootsuite, the well-funded, you know, giant, eventually you're putting a cap on the size you can ever grow. Because if that's your point of differentiation that you can reach out to the CEO every time you want, we're super personal and approachable and we're human, like eventually that's going to put a cap on your business, no? Yeah, it's not necessarily scalable. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it'll get you past a particular point of growth. But I think, um, yeah, I was still doing that until the point I sold, actually. So it reached a point where it wasn't sustainable. And I've seen our new CEO at Sendable obviously can't do that because she's running two companies now. But um, I think that that's the whole thing about it because it's so unique and so impossible to make scale <laughs> that people really lean in, kind of lean into that, that different kind of, um, kind of difference uh, um, of approaches because, yeah, it is just so different. I mean, it's so, it's so unique. Um, but I, th I think past this point, they, you have to look at other ways to scale. But... Um, for me, uh, it kind of got us to a point where we were acquired. And acquired you were. So let's get into that <laughs> because it obviously worked for you. And you got an amazing offer um, in 2021 from ASG. But before we get into that, talk about where you were at. So self-finance, you still own 100% of the business at this point. You didn't have partners or financiers, you were bootstrapped hundred percent. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, that in and of itself is rare, but you've got this business to the point where you've got almost 50, five, zero employees. So it's a significant, if it's significant business, did you have any sense? I mean, you, you must've heard in the marketplace, what SaaS companies were selling for. Did, did you have any sense of what a SaaS business, a profitable SaaS business growing 30% on the top line. I mean, did you have any sense of what a business like that could be worth? 
I had no idea. So, um, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't looking to sell the business. I was happy to kind of keep bootstrapping it. It was highly profitable. Um, you know, I was, I was, I was um, living a good life, you know, had, had freedom. You had a big team. Um, so I didn't really, didn't actually have a plan to sell the business. I wanted to keep growing this thing for 50 years, you know. Uh, and then, yeah, it was actually 2020 when some companies reached out to me. So I had, had conversations with quite a few well-known tech companies in Silicon Valley. Um, I think because of COVID, uh, you know, a lot of this was, was COVID was pushing things forward and accelerating um, kind of growth of, of SaaS companies. So I, I had a sense that kind of things were picking up because of COVID. We had that, that massive year of growth in 2020 leading into 2021. Uh, so I thought, okay, maybe, maybe now is a good time, but I hadn't, hadn't looked at multiples at all. I just thought, okay, maybe I should look at these things and see, maybe, maybe it is a good time. Uh, so I spoke to companies like, I probably can't name them, but there were a couple of well-known sort of kind of uh, more strategic possible acquirers. Uh, and they, they, they put some numbers down. Um, they weren't enough. And then I had a company reach out with a particular number. What did, what did they put up? What did they put down in terms of multiple of, of revenue? Like where were they, where was their head at at the time? Because it was strategic. Um, it was way below what I was, what I was, what I was going to get, but <laughs> in terms of multiples, I think, um, yeah, in, in the ranges of between three, three to six is probably the standard you would get for sort of a, a SaaS company. Um, uh, yeah, but I, it was, it's hard to say back then. I, I don't remember what the actual ARR was. Um, in 2020, at that time, to to be to be yeah. clear, to be clear, three to six three to six times annual recurring revenue. That's right. Yeah. Got it. So th so these offers were coming in in that range, and that coming, sounds like coming a lot in of money. more coming more at the lower <laughs> end, at the lower end, at the lower end of the range, right? And for me, for me to walk uh -huh. away from a company that was already making seven figures in profits as a, as 100 percent owner. You know, I needed to know that it would be enough for me to never have to work again. And, you know, I would be able to do this, uh, yeah, kind of knowing that I'd be fine for the future. Uh, so they, they came in with some offers like that at the lower end. And, um, yeah, it, it wasn't enough. And, you know, I would have to kind of join the company and run their uh, kind of social media division kind of thing, which didn't seem fun, running someone else's company and building their dream for them. So that, that wasn't really that appealing. Uh, and then it's another offer came in from a private equity firm at the higher end, um, which, you know, much higher end. So it, it kind of made me think, okay, maybe this is a good time, you know, to possibly think about selling. But again, I thought, you know, ugh, I'm not really going to sell now. You know, it's going so well. Profits are great. You know, I'm taking everything, you know, basically for myself, growing this company. So again, I didn't think it was a good time to sell, even though I thought, okay, there's, there's interest here. Something's going on. Our brand is, is getting bigger. There's all these interests uh, coming in. Um, so I thought, okay, let me just see what the valuation of the company is. So I went to a broker, um, a broker called FE International, uh, which is like a SaaS broker, just to see what, what, what is a good number, you know, that I should be looking at for this type of company. And we were, also, we were also coming out of the period of sort of a high, the high churn rate. And we were focusing on getting the churn rate down. So I saw churn issues in the numbers as well that people were probably going to see. Uh, so, um, sorry, FE International, their valuation was lower than what I ultimately got as well. So, and it's actually lower than the offer I got from this private equity firm. So I thought, okay, maybe I should consider this. Uh, and the LOI came through um, and that's when things started getting more serious. 
Yellow Eye came through for the private equity firm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What was your reaction to the Yellow Eye? I didn't know what it was. <laughs> so, you know, as a founder, I had no idea what an LOI was. So I had to basically get advice from someone. <laughs> you know, I saw the offer come through. I knew this. I wasn't sure if it was binding, binding or not. Um, in terms of the, the, I guess, deal structure, um, it made sense. You know, I wanted to be able to walk away and not have any earnouts or anything. So the offer was basically work for six months and then hand it over and walk away. So that was very appealing as a bootstrap founder because... Not, I think there's um, uh, nothing worse than kind of having someone else build your own dream for you and watching them build it. Like being there in the leadership meetings, watching someone else building your dream. So I wanted, I wanted to walk away from, from the company after selling. And they, they agreed on all those terms. Uh, and the number was, was the right number for me to be able to kind of never have to work again. So it was very appealing. Um, I wasn't sure like how binding the actual clauses were in the LOI. So I was, I was actually eager to sign it straight away because it was the right number. But uh, I, I took time. Um, I spoke to an advisor, um, an uh, uh, independent advisor, who just helped me with some of the um, kind of terms and clauses in the LOI to get that sorted out And before I went back. Uh, and, um, yeah, and then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go through the deal. I'll, you know, I'll go through the process and see what happens. Like the LOI was more like an offer, you know, so it doesn't mean I have to sign at the end of this. Let's see what happens, you know. What were some of the terms that you had an advisor help you to paper correctly? And the reason I ask, the listeners of this show are are really into the the details because they are going to go through the sale of their company, and so they're trying they're listening uh, because they want to avoid some of the mistakes that others have made. They want to be informed. They want to. They don't want to look naive going into the process. And so I'd be curious to know, even though it might not appeal to the masses, it appeals to, I think, our listeners to know kind of the details. So like, were there, like, what, could you share one of the deal terms that you had to get, uh, you know, get right or, or get some advice on how to paper it or, or write it so that it was kind of a founder friendly terms? Um, yeah. So from the LOI stage, um, I'll talk about the SBA as well, um, but from the LOI stage, uh, I just thought it wasn't binding, so there was no risk in me signing it, right? So I thought, okay, let me just go ahead and sign it. But in hindsight, I was advised that it's not good to sign things, even in the LOI, because those can come back when you're negotiating later on. So I can't remember what the details were, but there were small kind of wording changes kind of thing that were maybe just to protect me. Um, so I can't remember the details, details there, but... There were a few things because the company had so much cash in the bank. You know, we were sitting on millions in the in the bank, and I knew I wanted to be paid out. Basically, have the cash paid to me as well. Uh, so there, there were some issues there with um, kind of tax implications and, and that kind of thing. And you know, I've taken directors' loans that once they were once the company is acquired in the UK, that loan is paid off, and there's a tax payment that goes back to the company. Eventually, we go back to the previous owner of the company. So things like small details like this that only um, kind of an experienced M&A law firm would understand. So there were details like that. Uh, there were things like you know, kind of have, having certain assets excluded, um, you know, in, in the deal. Like I was, I was building the side project while working on Sendable, making sure that side project or any other code I'd worked on was excluded. But more, more things like like warranties, like making sure that I was protected and under the warranties. 
uh, I can't remember the details now, it was you know, over a year ago, but um, mainly around tax implications. And because we were selling to a US uh, private equity firm, they didn't always understand the tax side of things. So it took a lot of back and forth for them to get how the tax system works in the UK. Um, and then our, our legal team would go to the legal team and kind of get these things sorted out. So I guess those are things I wouldn't have noticed or picked up on if I hadn't had a, a legal firm helping me. And actually at first I was using my personal legal firm, you know, my, my personal lawyer who was advising me and uh, they weren't really experienced enough, you know, because the uh, ASG actually took a very well-known uh, experienced m and firm, um, you know, to work with them in the UK. And they actually advised me to get a better firm because I had, I had this personal law firm was helping who didn't know anything about tech or SaaS, didn't understand certain terms like MRR or, you know, churn. So I ended up going with Oric, which is a very well-known um, sort of M&A tech firm in the UK. And they, they were able to take over and just help with all those, all those little warranties, which are so, so dangerous, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's no faster way to blow up a deal than taking an inexperienced lawyer who knows nothing about corporate finance and having them represent you because they think their job as a lawyer is to protect you, which it is. But in, in protecting you, they're so overzealous in their uh, approach that they oftentimes blow up deals because they don't understand what's market, what are terms that are normal and like in the normal course of business versus ones that are off, outside of market. And so I think the moral of the story for my listeners is get yourself a lawyer who understands M&A, <laughs> who does M&A, it will pay for itself many, many, many times over. Great, great insight. I want to go back, if I may, um, to something you shared earlier. When we were talking about the transparency in your brand story and the impact it had on your growth rate after 2018, you mentioned you wanted to come across as a more human CEO. You're, you're getting the, the readout of the 100 new customers and you're sending them all a LinkedIn message. What reaction did the private equity group have when they learned how much a part of the human CEO you were personally? It's a very good question. Um, it wasn't really about the private equity firm that were kind of uh, surprised by it uh, because they, they, were, they were focusing on the, the kind of more classic marketing channels, we're looking at the ad campaigns we had looking at our SEO rankings, that, that kind of thing, you know, so it wasn't really, they weren't, weren't really aware of kind of the, the, the like level of um, kind of uh, maybe unscalable stuff I was doing. But I think it was more when, this, when, they, when they appointed a CEO uh, where she saw what I was doing and she couldn't really replicate that, you know, as a CEO who's been hired, you don't really have that founder story to lean on. So I was able to build a brand around a founder story, like, you know, coming from South Africa, being self-funded, bootstrapped, the whole thing is, is quite a compelling David versus Goliath story. Whereas since hiring a CEO who's just working for the private equity firm, she didn't have that. You know, I, I tried to hand over the podcast to her and that kind of fizzled out. She couldn't get that going because she was just too busy. You know, she was doing the classic CEO job. I was doing the founder job with a bit of CEO. That's kind of what I was doing. Uh, so I think it just it didn't really didn't really pan out that way. And she couldn't understand how I could do so much. You know, how could you run a company, kind of have a vision for the company, keep the team motivated, hire, and speak to customers every day. She couldn't understand how it's even possible, you know. Um, so it was, I mean, I was, I was actually working at night still, even after 12 years in, 
still doing these things and reaching out to customers, helping them. Even on the weekend, I'd jump on customer calls just to surprise them on a call. But she, she couldn't do those things. So I think, I think we, we've maybe seen some of the impact now where the, the brand, the, the face of the brand has gone since I've sold. And, uh, you know, it's, it's less, less visible. It's kind of less of a story there now uh, because it's not a founder-led company anymore. And I think it's a common thing that happens with founders. You know, I think the, the founder story is so compelling, so powerful to lean on. It's a, it's a real story from rags to riches that a lot of, lot of people don't actually use and they hide it away, they bury it. I mean, even me in the early days, I thought I needed to pretend to be bigger. I thought, we, it's, I thought, I thought you know, bigger companies won't trust a small bootstrapped company. Uh, so I pretended to be bigger and I even, uh, even created fake employees <laughs> in the early days. So I would set up fake email addresses and I would send emails from that person as myself, but from like a Lisa at sendable.com, for example, rather than me responding. But once I pivoted and switched that mindset of, okay, if the founder can be real and open, um, it's a real opportunity to grow your company. And I've seen the impact now, you know, since, since I've stepped away. I wondered if your deal involved some equity carry. Most private equity companies, when they buy a business, they ask the founder to carry some equity into a new entity that they set up. Were you required to, to, to roll some equity into a new entity effectively that they control? Um, yeah, so in terms of the details, uh, because they're a US firm, they created a new US company. Um, Sendable, basically at the time I was running it, we had two companies. We had a Sendable USA and a Sendable UK. They wanted to merge them into one company under a kind of under one umbrella. So basically there was, it was a period where, yeah, we had to, had to transfer equity into this new umbrella company. And then that's, that kind of happened on the day of close anyway. Um, but obviously I was paid out cash for everything and it was all, all a cash, cash only deal. But, uh. Yeah, there were some details there, the intricacies. I can't remember exactly how it worked, but we had to. We had about a period where the, the, that entity owned Sendable UK, and then they would pay out from that entity to me, kind of thing. Got it. I want you to tell me the story of when you told your wife that the deal was, in fact, confirmed that the money was in the bank. I'm, re I'm recalling something you said earlier in the conversation where I think you had six months worth of your living expenses saved up and, and your wife turned to you and said, well, don't worry, honey, I'm paraphrasing um, because we can live off my salary and you can, yeah. you know, we can just do this on my salary and we'll be fine. It occurs to me, she bet on you and I'd be curious to know how you communicated the fact that the deal had closed to her. Yeah, so she was actually there when it happened. Um, she was actually involved in the process towards the end um, because we, we kind of went through the process together besides the due diligence, which I did, I did myself. Uh, she was there with, the, with, with our lawyers, um, you know, in the calls advising us and kind of scrutinizing over the warranties, et cetera. So she was aware of everything. There was actually, I think on the, the day before we closed, we were up until 4 a.m. with our, our, our UK-based law firm trying to kind of agree the final deal uh, clauses with the US-based uh, company or acquirers. So that was, that was fun times. Um, I mean, our, our lawyer was actually on the call holding her sleeping baby while we were doing the deal. Uh, so basically, we, we signed the deal, I think the, the day after that, that all-nighter, and um, yeah, my, my wife was there. Like she, she took a photo of me as I signed it, literally from behind. 
she had a camera there as I signed it watching me because um, she knew that would be like a big deal for me to look back on. And as soon as I signed it, I just started crying, like literally burst into tears. Uh, she wasn't crying, but I was crying uh, because I just I remembered like the first uh, sale I'd made, like the first time someone had paid to use Sendable. I was like, I was on a beach in Cape Town, South Africa. I just bought an ice cream. And I remember buying the ice cream and thinking, wow, this guy, this, this customer just paid for my ice cream. I'm um, thinking, I was like, it's like, you know, it's like passive income. I wasn't doing any work. I was on the beach and here's some person who paid while I was enjoying myself. Um, so I, I remember that moment as I, as I had signed. I went back to the beginning. Like, it's crazy. You think, you, went, you go back to the start as it happens. And then I just thought of, wow, this is like massive. And, um, and obviously just all the hard work of six months due diligence leading up to that point debating and discussing and scrutinizing and putting numbers um, and even doing things behind my, because I was secretly setting the company. I didn't, didn't have my CTO involved, didn't have my head of growth involved, who would normally be involved. You know, they would normally give me the numbers. I had to go in there and do it behind their backs. So I felt so much guilt as well as happiness. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's like really mixed emotions, but uh, yeah, a lot of like sadness because of just the fact that I, I suppose happiness, but then sadness because it was over. Like my baby was gone kind of thing, you know. I do indeed. Talk me through the guilt. What what did you end up um, doing to communicate to your team, in particular your senior team, your decision and and, and what was their reaction? Yeah, so the, the day after, sorry, the, the day of closing, uh, I had a Zoom meeting with the um, leadership team because it was still COVID, you know, we were all isolated. So I couldn't tell them in person even. <laughs> so I had a, had a Zoom meeting, one-on-one uh, -on -one actually, with, with each of them, just telling them what had happened and the reason why. And um, I mean, I, my, my reason was, wasn't just the kind of, like kind of de-risking the business. It was more than that. Now it reached a point where we had hired like we'd hired 13 people in 2020. So 13 out of 47 people were hired in 2020 because of our growth. I was doing less of what I enjoyed doing. I told them the stuff, you know, I was doing less of what I enjoyed doing. I'm a founder, I like building stuff. I was doing more sort of hiring, delegation. And I was like kind of losing the fun um, of building a business. You know, I'd, I'd taken it to a point where I didn't, didn't want to get it to 100 employees. I didn't find that enjoyable or a goal of mine personally. I would, I'd rather build something else. So I explained that, you know, I'm better off at the startup stage. You know, Sendable's got bigger than what I'd ever what what I'd ever imagined. It's bigger than me personally. And I think for it to go to the next level, we need a different sort of leadership. Um, and I looked at all the options. I looked at hiring a CEO and me still owning the company, but I would still have the risk involved. I couldn't completely let go because it's my asset. And I said the only option that I came up with was for me to walk away and, um, you know, kind of sell it. So a company who I knew would keep the brand alive, would look after the team. This is the whole story I gave, gave everyone that I told. And they all fully understood. They said, yeah, Gavin, we understand why you're doing it. You know, you want to de-risk the company. Now's a good time. We understand. And they were actually very supportive in the leadership team. And then the day after I told all the leadership team members, I had to announce it to the company. So I told them all to keep it secret, obviously, for, for a day. Uh, and the day I told the company was actually the day of Sendable's anniversary. So our 12-year anniversary was the day I told the company I just sold. And again, I had to have a Zoom meeting with 50 people. I had to have a whiskey before because I was so nervous. And I had written the same speech. Like I told the company what had happened and why I did it and, um, you know, how I felt as a founder. I needed to build something again from scratch. So I'm like, you know, I, I kind of wasn't motivated anymore to build a bigger company. 
And um, it was like just dead quiet, you know, on Zoom, how awkward it can be. They were just like dead, dead quiet, dead silence, just dead pan faces. <laughs> I gave my speech and then I turned off Zoom and I said, look, I'm available for one-on-ones with anyone. I'm going to have, I'm going to chat to you all about this over the next few weeks. Uh, I literally had almost 50 one-on-ones with everyone in the company. And immediately after I told them I had a couple one-on-ones, people were in tears, just completely crying because they were worried about previous experiences that they had when the company was acquired, that the companies that, they, that they'd worked for about being laid, uh, kind of um, laid off, let go, uh, you know, numbers being cut. So I, I guess, yeah, there was fear about uh, uncertainty. There was sadness because they were worried about uh, being owned by a private equity firm and not a, not a founder. People were off work, kind of threatening to resign. Um, so as someone who had just done this deal, <laughs> you know how much guilt I felt then after telling them. Uh, so anyway, I had, had one-on-ones with them all and reassured them that I'd made the right decision, that they'd be looked after, that they wouldn't be let go. The new CEO was doing the same thing. And ultimately, they were okay. So most people still stayed with the company after us. So they're still there today. And in hindsight, I, I kind of made a mistake of looking at it more as a family uh, rather than as an asset. You know, I'd hired the ideal team, like the, the, the dream team, people I liked working with. So I saw them as family and as friends. But in reality, I had to do what, I, what, I, what was right for me um, as the owner. You know, Sendable was an asset. There were market changes I'd seen leading up to the day I was signing the deal, which helped me make the decision that it helped me make, helped me realize it was the right decision to make uh, at the time. Uh, and like just changing, changing the mindset from being sort of friends with the team to being the owner of an asset really helped me to overcome that, that guilt. Interesting. Yeah, you know, some people listening to that, the transition from thinking of your employees as family to this is just an asset I own. I chose to liquidate it, like I chose to sell some Bitcoin or you know, sell a commercial real estate property, whatever. They're saying, how could he be so cold? These are human beings, these are lives. What would you say to someone who who hears you say that and said, but, but that's but employees are family members. They are your people. They brought you to the dance. They were there to believe in you. Like, what would your reaction be to someone who, who had that sort of reaction? Um, no, I mean, I still, I guess at the time you're running your company, like when you're running a company, you feel like your family. And I always felt like that being in the, in the weeds, operating the business. You know, I wanted to motivate them, wanted to be friends with them. You know, people loved working there. People who were there for 10 years, even some for five years. They just loved the culture. But for me, I was so I was building my, my dream company. In my mind, I, ne- I, was, I, was, ne- I was never going to sell the company, right? So I never planned to sell. <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was always building this family of, of amazing employees that I would love to go to work and, and join and, and work with and you know, kind of overcome challenges together. But then when, 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 I, when I realized that all my, all my risk was in the business. So the day before I was actually deciding whether to kind of sign the deal or not, there was a big change in the social media space. Uh, so that's kind of when I realized, okay, this is a sign I should sell. And if I hadn't signed then, I would have kicked myself because you know the, the, the market changed completely since then. And uh, I think just, just thinking for yourself sometimes, you know, as a founder, you're so generous with your time. You're always giving, giving, giving. You know, I, I was giving profit sharing bonuses to the team, like massive profit sharing bonuses out of seven figures in profits. And I thought, okay, now's the time for me to think for myself, think, think of what I need to protect my family. Like what's the right thing for me to do right here? Like they, they have great lives. Worst case, they can find a different job if things don't pan out. Um, 
And it's, only, it's the first time I actually ever thought of myself as the owner of an asset, as opposed to being part of a family and uh, an amazing team. So I think, yeah, I would just say, I think when you're in the weeds, you don't see it. But take a step back every now and then and just realize you're building an asset and you have to do what's right for you because you've, you've taken the risk as a founder. You've given up kind of having a stable job for many years. You've, you've worked sleepless nights. You know, you've, you've had to make payroll for many years and look after your employees. It's okay to look after yourself once in a while. Well said. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? One or two word answers will do. Just a few handful of last questions. Yeah, sure. Sounds fun. Awesome. What is the slimiest trick? And you went through lots of discussions with companies in Silicon Valley and others. A potential acquirer tried to pull on you. Yeah, this is something I only realized in hindsight. I think I listened to an episode of your podcast where at the last minute they came up with a churn issue. Um, they kind of rebuilt our entire model, uh, MRR model, and they um, figured that there was something wrong with the data at the last minute. And uh, I think that, that was, I realized that was a trick uh, to get the valuation down. So I would say, just, I would say look out for last minute tricks and uh, maybe don't, don't ever, really, don't ever think of yourself as going through the deal until the last minute, until, until, until right at the end. Biggest mistake you made in the process of selling your company? Mm, that's a tough one. Uh, biggest mistake. Probably, I mean, probably not being more open with the employees about it. But, you know, I realized it might have been a risk to the company if I'd been more open. But um, getting my CTO involved might have just been helpful. And uh, yeah, it might have made things a bit easier for me. But I wouldn't say it was a mistake, but maybe a lesson is, yeah, maybe, maybe get your team involved if you, if you, feel, if you feel that you can. And if it's, if it's not a risk to the business, then just, yeah, open up. <laughs> what, was the, what was the lowest emotional point you reached during the process of selling? <sighs> okay, this is a, a tough one, but... Uh, <laughs> So we were going through the due diligence process. Um, so the whole, the whole team was obviously isolating in lockdown. And I went into the office uh, by myself just to have a Zoom call with ASG. And I remember at the time, my phone was ringing off the hook. Like my, my, my phone was just ringing nonstop. It was my wife calling. Um, and she had told me that her mom had just gone, her mom had COVID. And she had just gone into ICU um, just, just uh, basically just put, put, into, put on a ventilator in ICU and I was in the middle of the negotiation process. And uh, that was a real tough time. Like I had to call that call short and just go home to be with, to be with my wife. Um, yeah, COVID was, was tough back then. Yeah, that sounds like a really difficult moment. What was the highest point that you reached during the process of selling? The highest point was, so after, after I sold, um, after kind of COVID calmed down a bit, I was able to host a party for the team. So I had, had the team over at my house. Um, you know, we had caterers come in and uh, had some drinks and um, everyone got to celebrate together. I think doing it on, on Zoom was, was really hard and awkward. But once they'd realized, it was, I think it was about six months later, <laughs> they'd realized things were okay, everyone was really happy. There were some promotions, people got bonuses after selling. And I think it was just a really good time for everyone to unwind and um, to celebrate the actual sale itself. 
you mentioned earlier that you, you didn't know what an LOI was. So my guess <laughs> is you didn't spend a lot of time educating yourself about the process of selling. But I would be curious, as you got into it further, the process of selling, that is, were there any resources that you found helpful that you could point other people to? Any books or courses or uh, conferences, anything that that might help listeners sort of educate themselves about the process of selling? Um, yeah, for me, I just listened to a bunch of podcasts, to be honest. Um, you know, I found as many podcasts as I could, uh, whether interviews like this one with founders. So I think what you're doing is amazing. Um, any, any, yeah. any ones that you particularly found helpful? Any Any hosts that you have found um, really good. There's a podcast that I often listen to, I think, since the beginning, um, since, I, since I started Sendable, uh, called Startups for the Rest of Us, which is, it kind of focuses on Oh, yeah, Rob Walling. Yeah. Rob Walling, yeah. It's kind of focused on bootstrapped yeah. founders yeah. and uh, always related to that story of being bootstrapped, kind of understood how they were experiencing kind of being a solo founder as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think that, that, that podcast really helped me. Yeah, Rob's a great... Uh, host and one of the pioneers in podcasting, his show Startups for the Rest of Us is definitely worth a listen. We'll put it in the show notes at builtthecell.com. And Rob's a great guy. We've actually had him on the show because he sold Drip and we talked to him about the, the uh, selling Drip. And so he was a great guest as well. So um, last question. What trophy did you buy yourself to commemorate the win? Um, what did I buy? I actually didn't buy much, to be honest. Um, I guess I think the thing is I had everything I wanted, right? So there was nothing really I needed besides the freedom. For me, it was all about the freedom. So maybe small things like a coffee machine here and there or, um, gym equipment. We have a gym in our, in our garage. So I bought some gym equipment, uh, but there was actually nothing, nothing major. We were actually, we we're doing work on our house at the time I'd sold as well. So I paid for the renovations, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm sure most founders tell you it's an anticlimax. You see the money come in and then that's it. You know, it's kind of, uh, you don't go and splurge or buy yourself anything normally. It's just kind of, it's, it's like a normal day after that. And for you, the freedom knowing that you would never have to work again was the motivation. But you are working. Tell us about the new business and where people can find you or reach out and on social media. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm on social media. I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. If you search for Gavin Hammer, H A M M A R. Um, and on Twitter, same, same name, Gavin Hammer. Uh, you can also email me if you want to just chat about setting a business. I'm happy to kind of give advice to listeners. Um, so just Gavin at storyprompt.com. So my new business is, is story, it's called Story Prompt. Um, actually, I built it probably around 2020. So when the team was remote, we needed a tool to be able to collect uh, sort of videos from the team because we wanted to show our faces more. The whole thing about building a brand, showing a face. And because we were so isolated and our customers were isolated, I wanted a way to get our faces out there and the faces of our customers out there, like through testimonials, thought leadership content, UGC. So I built this tool just to collect content. You send a link out, you get a video back. We then have AI that'll apply branding and kind of optimize your video for you, um, add music, that kind of thing. And I built it and as, I, as people started using it, they said, how can we use this thing? How can we get access to this tool? So I thought, okay, once I sell Sendable, I get this thing off the ground, build the product. Um, and it's evolved now into a face-to-face -face online community platform 
which is asynchronous. So basically, it's almost like a cross between TikTok and Slack, where you speak face to face asynchronously. It's great for masterminds, for coaches. And uh, yeah, people are loving it. It's, it's a really great way to build human connection. Again, put a face to the, to the brand and build a following because I, be I believe, I think these days, founders have to build a community to get your business going and build a, build a community around your personal, your personal brand. So that, yeah, that, that, that's what I'm up to right now. And um, as I said, happy to speak to any founders and uh, share my advice on setting a company. That is an awesome and a very generous offer. We'll put uh, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter feed, uh, your new company, all links at builttosell.com. Gavin, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, John. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Gavin Hammer. For show notes, including links to everything referenced, including the article I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you can go ahead and visit the show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode and want to help support the show, then head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have a chance to leave a rating and review. It really helps the show grow and get it in front of more people just like you. So I will share that link as well in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who'd be a great guest right here on the podcast, then you can actually nominate them. You can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you have a chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community is our experts in helping you build the value of your company. If you want to get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. Music.